Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name is Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Richard Fontaine, former State Department, National Security Council and Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff, Senator John McCain's former foreign policy advisor and the current president of the Center for a New American Security. Richard Fontaine, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. For those who haven't heard of the Center for a New American Security and might not be familiar with your work, could you tell us a bit about the organization and how you got working for them? Sure. Uh, CNES was founded in 2007, uh, which still makes us one of the newer think tanks in Washington, D.C. We're a bipartisan national security think tank, and we uh, are in the business of developing uh, bold and innovative approaches to really the toughest national security questions that the country faces, whether it's related to defense and technology and economics or the regions like in Asia and in the Middle East and in Europe. Uh, we place a lot of emphasis on uh, training and equipping the next generation of national security leaders. Uh, in fact, we're sending some into the administration imminently, um, and uh, and we're highly collaborative, looking at at uh, issues that cross a lot of the traditional seams in foreign policy and national security. So, uh, we're a relatively small, relatively new, relatively young organization, um, uh, but that's what we do, and uh, we've got a great team doing it. One of the biggest national security discussions at the moment is not about any international issue, but is in fact about what's been going on in the US. We witnessed an attack on the US Capitol on 6th of January. While some at the top of America's political system have remained silent on this, the Joint Chiefs of Staff issued a memo condemning the incident separate to the administration. Do you fear that what we're seeing at the moment and what we potentially have seen over the last four years is a splintering of the political and military figures having to be forced to operate independently to maintain America's national security there. Yeah, well, look, I, I worked in the U.S. Senate for seven years of my life and to watch uh, what happened at the Capitol was shocking and just absolutely appalling. It's something that I never thought I would see at any point in my lifetime, uh, but that's the reality of, uh, of where we are at this moment in our national history. It's a pretty uh, dark day. Um, you know, I, as you said, the Joint Chiefs issued a memo to all of the U.S. military saying some pretty straightforward and simple things, that Joe Biden had been elected president, would become the new commander-in-chief on January 20th, and that the uh, loyalty of US troops is to the constitution. It was a very good message. Uh, the problem that I have with this is it was not coupled by similar messages out of the civilian leadership in the US government. Uh, and it's really striking that it's been almost silence when you look at the cabinet, certainly the president, and even to some degree, the vice president, I mean, at a moment of national trauma and such deep division as the one that we just saw last week, you would hope and expect the civilian leadership of the US government to be out explaining to the American people what's happening, reassuring them that the democratic institutions that we hold dear are gonna stay in place, um, that cooler heads can, can, can prevail and that we'll get through this. 
And you really don't see any of that. And that's the split uh, that I that I think is is most disappointing. I'm not worried about the military somehow taking power into its own hands, or and I was not worried that the insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol were going to succeed once and forever in preventing the election from being certified for Joe Biden. The democratic institutions in the United States have held; they've been battered. Uh, but they're far from broken. Uh, but it's it's the day-to-day fact right now that we're essentially uh, a country without leadership at the highest levels that's pretty disturbing. You posted a tweet recently which said, with more troops now in Washington, D.C. than in Iraq and Afghanistan combined, it's clear that America's own divisions represent a chief security threat. And we're still seeing that division that exists. Leading voices in the Republican Party are continuing to spread what got Donald Trump muzzled on social media and the lies that resulted in that attack. And these are individuals that have been cited as potentially being the leaders of the Republican Party in four years' time. Do you believe the division in America is the greatest threat to national security, as some have claimed? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, part of this is a matter of interpretation. How do you think about security and all these other things, right? So, you know, uh, how do you classify the difference between the divisions uh, that we have at home and their effects compared to great power competition, Chinese illiberalism, all those other things? That's hard to do, but I would say this. The more divided we are, the harder it is to tackle any of the other problems, and that's the issue. So there's both the the domestic violence, domestic terrorism, um, instability at home that these divisions can produce, but then there's also the follow-on division uh, in when it comes to actually the formulation of responses to the national security threats we do face. And you can pick whatever you think is the most uh, sort of acute of those threats, whether it's terrorism and global warming, um, you know, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, uh, a divided, a, a very seriously divided internally looking body politic finds it harder to mar- to marshal national level solutions to some of these problems. And so for that reason, I think that um, unfortunately right now, in some ways we're our own worst enemy. The good part is I think some of this is fixable um, but uh, we're not showing great capacity for that at this the moment that we're recording this podcast. One of the key roles America has seen in its approach to foreign policy traditionally has been the promotion of democracy, encourage free and fair elections, and importantly for the politicians involved in those elections to accept the result of them. Obviously, America has not seen that with its own election that's recently happened. You said the US should continue to promote democracy abroad despite Donald Trump's attacks on it. How does the US retain authority in this sphere after what we've not just witnessed in the last month, but in the last four years? Yeah, it's a great question. And immediately after the capital attack, Zimbabwe, which has been the subject recently of sanctions related to violations of democratic practice there, their president put out a statement saying, 
the United States has shown it has no moral standing to criticize democratic practice in any other country. Get out of our business, remove the sanctions, you know, and all stuff like that. Um, and, you know, I'm, my response to this, uh, there's both a, there's both an encouraging answer and a, and a, and a, almost a terrible answer to this in my mind. The encouraging answer is uh, that I think when it comes to our democratic practices, and even when we look right now, it's not a good time, but the glass is one third empty, two thirds full. I mean, it is true that we've made uh, a terrible mess of democracy and the peaceful transfer of power, but it is the case that a peaceful transfer of power will happen that the right after the attack on the Capitol, the, the senators and representatives came back and actually did certify the election for the guy who actually won. We do have a president who claims uh, that he really won. And he's got this evidence somewhere to show that. But we know that's not true. And he's not actually going to get his way. Uh, and, and, you know, and ultimately, the underlying uh, liberal rule in the United States is in such a different place than for example, China or Iran or certainly a place like North Korea. Um, that I think, uh, you know, we have to see the, the de American democracy as battered, but it's not true that American democracy is broken, uh, that, that democracy didn't hold, that it, that it failed. That's, that's not the case. And then there's, you know, a much more almost kind of cynical, terrible answer, which is the United States has been in the business of promoting democracy and human rights, despite terrible things that have happened at home. I mean, if you think about John F. Kennedy saying that the United States would bear any price, would, bear, would, would pay any price and bear any burden in support of freedom around the world, at the very same time that the Voting Rights and Civil Rights Acts hadn't even been envisioned and hadn't passed the Congress and, and African-Americans couldn't vote in the South, well, I mean, why don't you apply the standard you're seeking in other places to yourself? It'd be a pretty good idea. Uh, I mean, all the way back to our founding, when um, some of your countrymen observed that, you know, Americans like to talk a lot about freedom, but enslave their brethren. So isn't this an interesting war? Um, in the United States, so it's, it's a terrible answer. But I think uh, the, the response to say that because we are flawed and because we have these problems, the answer would be to not support the forces of democracy and human rights around the world would uh, just not be the right response. Um, again, because there are uh, countries out there, people in those countries that despite all of our flaws will look to the United States, uh, maybe even for some degree of inspiration, but also for material support and help and things like that. The United States does have geopolitical weight above all other countries in terms of what it can do diplomatically. Uh, and uh, this is sort of built into our foreign policy DNA. It's part of the American mission in the world that our power in the world is not just for narrowly construed self-interest only. It's not just for protection of our own people at home and their natural homeland. Um, it's for that, but it's also for to help move the world in a better place. I think one of the lessons of all this is that move toward a better place has got to include ourselves. CNAS prides itself on presenting fact-based research. One of the problems that has emerged in America is the lack of trust that people have in what their politicians say when 
lies, falsehoods, misinformation are pushed by elected officials. Also, when there are concerns about what they see online with disinformation being deliberately sown by foreign actors, as well as domestic individuals trying to create division and, and discontent. Do you fear that fact-based information could be being shunned in favour of materials now that just back up not just political people's points of views, but just ordinary people now look for what supports their agenda rather than what's actually true. Yeah, I do worry about that. You know, democracy relies on two things to function effectively. One is a shared picture of reality and the other is some basic level of trust. And both of those are taking a real beating now. Um, you know, if you want to believe that Donald Trump really won the election, that voting machines are screwed up and mail-in ballots are fraudulent. And in fact, he won by a landslide. You can go online and find people that will say that and, and pseudo evidence to support that. If you want to find the opposite, then you can find that too. Um, and, and that's true on that issue, but you know, you could almost go down the line. For CNES, I think this is somewhat less of an issue because of uh, the audience for a lot of our work as national security and foreign policymakers and foreign policymakers. And, um, and, and, and most policymakers uh, don't just decide in the morning to pick their own reality. Most of them are not terribly confused about the difference between fact and fiction or authoritative sources of information or non-authoritative sources of information. I think the bigger issue is among the, the voting public and the political uh, leaders, the elected political leaders who are influenced uh, by those. And that's a real problem that no one has got a great answer to. So it's, it's, it's less salient in the day-to-day -day, uh, course of our work at CNES where we're looking at a particular problem or national security phenomenon or something like that and then trying to generate some recommendations. You still mostly get to arguments and disagreements over the proposals rather than the, the diagnosis, although sometimes you'll argue over the facts. Uh, but it, 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 that's quite different than, you know, if you wanted to go online and find out that, uh, you know, actually uh, American government officials are being organized by a shadowy cabal of, you know, child abusing, uh, whatever, you can find that. It's not true, but you can find that. And um, how we get back to something approaching a more unified shared sense of reality that's a big, that's a big issue for our society and not only our society, obviously, but especially ours. During the introduction I mentioned how you worked at the State Department, you worked in the office of Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage and in the department's South Asia Bureau to be more specific. There's concern in that region that China is encroaching on the territory of Nepal, Taiwan, and also instilling its own political agenda in areas like Hong Kong. What sort of carrot and stick approach can be taken to China's clear violation of the agreements that are in place, the territorial situation that's in place for regions like that? And I recognize there are obviously three different areas, yeah. three different approaches that might need to be taken. But on the whole, China is showing a pattern yeah, I think the answer, as you alluded to, is that it's different approaches depending on the situation you're talking about. Um, you know, in Hong Kong, the uh, the government of Beijing has essentially extinguished the, the last embers of, of democracy in Hong Kong. 
Um, there's some steps that the U.S. has taken already together with other uh, countries like uh, um, like rescinding Hong Kong special trade status under under U.S. law and things like that. With respect to Hong Kong, uh, I, I think for the United States to um, to throw open its borders to those Hong Kongers, particularly uh, skilled Hong Kongers who would like to leave and live in a free society, essentially something akin to what the, what the Brits have have put on on offer, uh, would both be a strengthening of U.S. society, but also uh, demonstrate to to the the forces in Beijing that when you restrict people's rights, you risk a brain drain of people that would prefer to live in a free society. It's not just all about uh, prosperity in a surveillance state where you have no, no meaningful rights to speak or assemble. Um, when you're talking about uh, South Asia, especially India, for example, where you know China and India fought a border skirmishes, uh, putting it probably a little mildly, but uh, last year, there, I think the answer is to continue our efforts to work with India more closely, particularly in the security realm, something that's been going on for a good 15 years now. And, but the, uh, the appetite on the Indian side in particular to do more with the United States has risen. We can really thank our Chinese, uh, our Chinese friends uh, for having concentrated the mind in New Delhi. Um, but we should take advantage of that and look for ways that we can assist the Indians uh, on intelligence matters, on security matters, both um, land and air, but also in the Indian Ocean and in the Pacific more broadly. Um, and then, you know, Taiwan, uh, as we speak, the U.S. ambassador to the, to the U.N. is on uh, her way to Taiwan for the first time since the normalization of ties with, with China. So there's a certain uh, upgrading of, of diplomatic ties, or one might want to say a, a relaxation of the previous constraints on diplomatic ties between the United States and, and Taiwan. That has some symbolic effect, but I think there, um, again, the, the, the more um, salient way to work with Taiwan is to increase uh, its ability to deter a Chinese attack uh, on its island. And they've made some really great strides over the past few years and sort of reorienting their own defense concepts away from uh, kind of legacy weapon systems and, and fighters and tanks and, and a desire for submarines toward uh, things that would be more effective in protecting their island against uh, Chinese attack, uh, sort of hardening um, their own bases, uh, you know, doing work out on the coast and, and in the waters and things like that. And, and that's the kind of stuff that I think the United States can continue to help the Taiwanese uh, on. Another region that the U.S. has been heavily involved in for decades is the Middle East, where America has contended with security threats, tried to instill democratic values and stability in that area. There are those that think that the Trump administration has in this area actually made some progress. Jared Kushner working with places like Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Bahrain to restore some sort of relationship between them after several years of disagreements. There are others that think that's overstated and the Trump administration's impacts there has done little to alleviate the risks and restore order to that area. What do you think has been the impact over the last four years of the work that has been going on there? Has it made 
the world a safer place? Has it achieved the goal that they were setting out to do? Yeah, I think they deserve genuine credit and that uh, the Israel normalization, the, the so-called Abraham Accords, uh, are genuine diplomatic success, particularly in a region where it can be pretty damn hard to find diplomatic successes. Uh, a lot of times you're dealing with just mitigating bad outcomes. Uh, but, you know, the normalization of ties uh, between the UAE and Israel, Sudan, um, Morocco, these countries, um, Bahrain, it's, um, it, it's a historic thing. I mean, we haven't seen an Arab country uh, establish diplomatic ties with Israel since 1994, when Jordan became the second after Egypt in 1979 to take that step. And, you know, reducing uh, the, the, the friction and the tension that has historically existed really since the birth of Israel uh, through the present day and formalizing uh, a form of, of partnership is uh, a way to make the region uh, less combustible and, and safer and, and better. Uh, there's a lot of work on terms of the follow-on because what you want to do is um, encourage the making those links solid through economic links, people links, you know, travel, things like that. And that's already starting to some degree. You see, you know, LL flights landing in Dubai or Abu Dhabi and, and vice versa and things. Um, a lot of people pointed out, well, this is no panacea. It didn't solve the Palestinian question. Well, that's true, but I don't think they claimed that it solved the Palestinian question. The Palestinian question uh, has was also pursued by this administration, as all the other ones, and that was a failure. Uh, but in that, I got to say, they're not alone. I mean, show me the administration that you know, which U.S. administration successfully brought about uh, brought about a final status agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. I think the answer is zero. Um, so, uh, the fact that it's not a panacea that it didn't solve every problem is true, but not particularly relevant, I think, when you're sort of handicapping the score on that. What do you think was the secret to that success there? Was it an approach that they took that could arguably be replicated to continue building on that success? Was it simply good timing that those countries were willing to work together at this point? It just required a bit of a push from a U.S. administration. What was the reasoning behind that success? That yeah, there were a couple of reasons. One, uh, times have changed in the Middle East, and uh, you know the hostility among uh, Arab leaders, particularly those who've given way to kind of a new generation of leaders uh, toward Israel, just isn't what it used to be. They just don't see Israel as either the threat or the menace that they saw it before, um, which is great. And there's a shared enemy in Iran, both between Israel and many of these Arab countries. And there's all already been behind the scenes cooperation on intelligence and some security matters uh, that go beyond, that, that, that were sort of set the groundwork for this. So, you know, times have changed, the strategic uh, picture in the Middle East has changed, the perception of threat has changed, things like that. Uh, you know, another one was just kind of this personal diplomacy. I think, you know, Jared Kushner, sort of, you know, himself engaged with many of these leaders personally and, and, and all this. And they were willing to trade some things. Um, and that's been the most controversial part of this. But, you know, Morocco got U.S. recognition that the Western Hemisphere is part of Morocco, which it had previously 
been agnostic about uh, as part of the deal. Sudan got off the terrorist, the sponsored terrorism list, and there were some attendant agreements to make that happen, but that was part of the package. Uh, you know, so you can sort of go through and see in each case how they cobbled together incentives to push this through. And again, that's the most controversial part of it. Um, but I think without that, uh, you would not have seen all these countries just on their own recognize Israel without U.S. pushing mediation and then the, the desire to sort of work a deal here. When you talk about national security and foreign policy, you can't ignore the concerns that exist between U.S. and Russia relations. Russia clearly has expressed its aspirations, seeking to expand its control and its territory around surrounding areas, whether that's through political influence in former Soviet Union nations, or whether that's through military action like what we've seen in Ukraine, where Russian aligned forces are still present in areas of Ukraine. What part should America and the West be taking in this conflict? What role should they be playing in this approach by Russia to expand its sphere of influence? Yeah, I think, well, this starts, I think, with understanding what's driving uh, Russian behavior in the first place. And this, of course, is always a matter of some interpretation and discussion. Uh, but what the Russians are doing right now is very consistent with what the Russians and then the Soviets and then the Russians did, again, um, over the course of their history. Their fear of uh, domestic uh, instability fomented or aided by an outside country or even outright invasion from the Mongols through Napoleon, through Hitler, um, has made them seek a uh, a geographic sphere of influence that it would control. And if it can't control it, then the next best step is to keep those governments and countries permanently off, off balance politically so that they can't align with your perceived enemy. Uh, that sounds strange to us because we know that NATO has no desire to in invade Russia, uh, but they seem to believe that this is a threat to them. There's also the issue that the, the Russian vision of where their country should stand in the world is significantly higher than where it actually stands today by virtue of its sort of geo, geopolitical weight. You know, the, the Russian approach at the Helsinki summit with Donald Trump was sort of kind of what they would like to see. It was two leaders, not Xi Jinping, not anybody else, two leaders, Putin and, and Trump, talking not about bilateral relations even, but about all the different world's problems environmental, Syria, economic, et cetera, et cetera, and how only by working together could the two of them resolve that. But that, that, was, that was close to a cartoon. That doesn't actually represent the geopolitical standing of Russia in the world relative to other countries. Uh, so this, this combination of, of uh, feeling that the, 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 the Russia doesn't deserve the respect and, and uh, recognition that it should by virtue of its, its implicit status plus this feeling of insecurity on its borders, however much that may be at odds with the intent and the fact on our side, means that you're gonna have a Russia that is uh, constantly looking to um, push for advantage, both geographically and otherwise. Um, I think, you know, it, it, if you're talking about a NATO country, then there's one set of answers in terms of what the United States and others can and should be doing in order to reinforce NATO's east and make sure that we have the ability to respond to any NATO attack. 
I thought it was the right call in a place like uh, Ukraine to provide uh, lethal aid to the government of Ukraine that was trying to defend itself against Russian-backed partisans in the Donbass region and things like that. I would say, however, that we tend to spend a lot of time and have historically thinking about, you know, what a Russian invasion of the Baltics would look like and how would we fend it off? And if tank columns came across the border, what would that mean? And we should. But over the past few years, it seems pretty clear to me that from an American perspective, the biggest um, and likeliest threat is not a Russian invasion of a NATO country that we have to go to war to fend off, but rather uh, Russian meddling in our own democratic practice. Clearly, the elections in 2016, or this breathtaking attack on US government uh, computer systems. Um, and dealing with that is both harder and much more immediate uh, because that really does cut to the core of who we are as, as a country. And um, that's how I think we have to start to rack and stack the Russian threats is not, you know, tank columns first and then way down the line uh, interference in, in, in democracy abroad, but rather the reverse. How should the Biden administration approach that? Because in the last two presidents, we've seen Barack Obama took quite a firm approach to Russia, whereas Donald Trump went in and he treated Vladimir Putin and Russia as a friendly nation. He got quite close. He was very praising of Vladimir Putin. You mentioned how Russia wants to see itself in the world. Should the next administration be taking that strict, firm approach no nonsense to Russia, or should it be looking to exploit Russia's desire to be seen as more important than potentially is geopolitically, bringing it into the fold, working alongside it, or should it be saying, if you don't play ball, we're going to put these sanctions? How do you deal with a nation like that? Yeah, I, I, I just to differ for a little bit about your characterization, I think there was a paradox in both the Obama and the Trump administration's approaches to China. I mean, President Obama would say that you know, talk relatively harshly about Russia, say that it was just a regional power and, and things like that. But uh, there were forms of lethal aid that President Obama declined to provide to Ukraine. Uh, he didn't get involved in Syria for quite a long time when the Russians did. Uh, he didn't sanction the oligarchs. He didn't do sectoral sanctions in Russia and so forth. Um, enter Donald Trump, who never seems to have a ill word to say about Vladimir Putin, but he did all of those things. He provided lethal aid to Ukraine. He got involved uh, and, and essentially declared a, a, a protected zone in, in Syria. He attacked uh, Assad after the chemical weapons attack, which was a Russian ally, at, you know, and actually annihilated a Russian mercenary force in Syria. He uh, closed Russian consulates and expelled so-called diplomats in those facilities, sanctioned the oligarchs, did sectoral sanctions. So the Trump rhetoric has been much more favorable than the Obama rhetoric, but the Trump policy has been far harsher toward Russia than the Obama policy. Um, I think with the Biden team, the, overall, the skeptical firm approach is, is the better one. But I would like to see actually um, whether there are some areas in which uh, this Russian quest for status and respect as sort of a great power uh, could be dealt with for example, in arms control, I think the Biden administration will come in and do a clean uh, extension of the New START uh, nuclear agreement. Um, maybe on some uh, other issues related to 
pandemics or, or some other things, it's going to be hard because the level of distrust is very, very high and the levels where we should react with um, sticks instead of carrots is many more than the areas of cooperation. Um, but it would be, and, and, and under no circumstances, everybody, anybody re try to reset relations with Russia one more time. We've tried that sort of three times in a row. Um, but uh, within the parameters of a competitive, um, fairly hostile relationship, which I think is what we're stuck with for quite a period of time, trying to find areas of exception to that, I think would be in our interest. Finally, where can people find out more about you, your work, the Center for a New American Security? Sure. So you can go to cnas.org and uh, find all of our publications and, uh, and media output and, and programs there. It breaks down our seven research programs, the geographic ones and uh, the ones dedicated to defense and veterans and then uh, technology and economics. Uh, you can look at some of the other things that we do um, on uh, our next gen national security leaders program and, and things like that. And then I guess like everyone right now, the real answer to where you can find us is virtually. Uh, you can go to our offices, but you're not gonna find too many people there. Uh, but we do have offices, but in the meantime, we are running a very large number of seminars, speeches, events, discussions, things like that. We even had a, a competition of national security ideas for uh, for young people, sort of a shark tank meets the situation room uh, kind of exercise. Uh, so 2021 will be a very busy and active one for us. But if you go to our website, you can get more information about all of those things and sign up for a mailing list. You can, you can do a lot there. Richard Fontaine, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. That was Richard Fontaine, the current president of the Center for a New American Security. You can find out more about him on Twitter at RHFontaine, the Center for a New American Security at CNASDC, and at CNAS.org. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about the interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Until next time, goodbye.